All right, before we get started this morning, I know we're going to have to do a little bit of review. Shut this door to catch everyone up. But uh, let me say this from the start. Um, uh, this morning for Sunday School, we started a new series that I truly, honestly believe may be the most important series I've ever done in the history of this church. Um, I don't like to say that because pastors say that with every series they preach uh, because you want to make the people think that it's important because you want them to pay attention, right? So you got to say, this series is the most important. This series is the most important. I try not to do that, but this one truly is. And so rarely do I say this to the people here, but this is one of those that I really do need you. I don't care if you're using the Spreaker app. I don't care if you're using the Church One app. I don't care if you're using a podcast app. I don't care how you get, I don't care if it's Pandora, I don't care if it's Spotify, I don't care which app that our content is on, but pick one, make sure your notifications are on, and please listen to every episode we do in this series, because not only will I be doing things from here, I'll be adding additional content from home, uh, from you know where I have everything set up for podcasting, because this is an important series. This is the most important. Look, if everyone leaves the church when this series is over, I'll still be like, okay, that's great. They at least had to hear it, all right? So just before you leave, wait till the series is over, okay? That's all I ask, so that I can at least pat myself on the back going, they at least heard it before they all left the church, okay? But this is that important. It's that very, it's that important. I cannot stress it enough. And so what we started this morning was this. First, we acknowledge, in fact, let me just read from a book that I think really summarizes this very good, so you don't think it's me saying this, but these are very important words, and I think it's important, all right? This is from a book called God's No and God's Yes. It's a Christian book. It's not a book written by a skeptic or an agnostic, but they say this, comparing Holy Scripture with other writings, we observe that no other book is apparently so full of contradictions as the Bible, and that not only in minor points, but in the principal matter as well. And I added a few things there for clarification, but you get the point. They are acknowledging the Bible is full of contradictions. Now, when as soon as we hear that, we do what? No, 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 there are no contradictions. But we have to acknowledge. So this morning for Sunday school, we looked at a big one that everyone has to acknowledge. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says that we're saved by grace through faith. James says we're not saved by faith alone. Okay? That's a contradiction. Since the Protestant Reformation, there have been attempts to reconcile this apparent contradiction. And what do we always do to try to reconcile this apparent contradiction? And we pat ourselves on the back and we walk away thinking, look, look, I proved it. I proved my point. Well, everyone listening to us usually like, these Christians are delusional if they think that that fixes anything. But what's our go-to solution for this problem? Yes, we're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves doesn't remain alone. In other words, we're saved by faith alone, but it's going to produce works. And if it doesn't produce works, then we're not saved. But if it requires works to be saved, how can you say that I'm saved by faith alone? It's a contradiction. It's a circle. Like we, we, We say this all the time. Hey, no, we're saved by faith alone, but if you don't produce enough works, then you're not saved. Well, then... I'm saved by works. I don't care all the... You can play the semantics all day. I'm then saved by works. And then what's the obvious question anyone should have? How many works? What kind of works? Because we go to Matthew 7, and there were some people who had all kinds of works. They cast out demons. They did miracles. In Christ's name, they referred to him as Lord, Lord. And what did he say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. So if their works weren't sufficient, how do you know your works aren't sufficient? Right? And then wait, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had a million works, did they not? So how do you know you have the right kind of works? How do you know you have enough works? And so I gave everyone three scriptures or three concepts that come from the scriptures. And what are those three concepts? Number one, love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And number three, be holy as God is holy. Now, those three things, has anyone here ever pulled that off for 15 minutes? No! So if works proves you're saved, I just proved you're not saved. So, that the, the, so one of the solutions to try to fix this is known as lordship salvation. 
Lordship salvation says, okay, look, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but you have to do all of these things in order to prove you're saved. And they give you a test. And that test is literally how many points usually? Somewhere between 10 and 14. Some have up to 16. And what are some of the things on that test? Oh, guess what? Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be holy. But then what do they always say in the test? But you're not going to do it perfectly. So wait, so my in, and, and not only this, what does this seem to imply? That I'm not saved by an imputed righteousness, but by an infused righteousness, and I have to produce enough righteousness to prove that I got any infused righteousness. But if I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, then you can't judge my practical righteousness to determine if I'm saved because I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, which is what? perfect. So, how do we reconcile this? Well, there is a very important concept in the Bible, and it's known as law and gospel. And the proper distinction of law and gospel is considered by some in church history to be the second most important doctrine in the entire Bible. The first one, as Luther would said, the church stands and falls on what doctrine? Justification. And Luther would agree that the second most important doctrine is the proper distinction between law and gospel. Most evangelicals, most fundamentalists, most, most Protestants don't understand this distinction between law and gospel. And whenever they try to draw, to try to explain it, what do they almost always obliterate? Gospel. The law is never obliterated. Gospel is always obliterated in the evangelical church. While we claim we're not Catholic, and those Catholics believe in a salvation by works, we have our own salvation by works. We just try to change the language to get around it. We obliterate the gospel. So we're working on a distinction between law and gospel. I cannot go back and repeat everything in the first hour. Please go back and listen to it. Please, 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 please. It will be uploaded to the Church One app probably by 1, by 1 p.m. It will be there. And it's, of course, it's already on all the podcasting apps, probably already. So here's what we're doing. Now, there's a lot, of thing that, a lot of things we could say here, a lot of things we could work on. We defined law and gospel. That's very important. How did we define law and gospel for those who were here the first hour? Law, do this and live. Or, someone said, do this and be saved. All right? Which is what I want you to understand. Do this and be saved. Gospel is, Christ has done this so you can live. One, do this. The other one, it has been done for you. We have to understand this distinction. So, to help us learn this distinction, I have set out to give you how many theses? 25 theses. 25. I know that doesn't sound as good as Luther. Okay? I want you to write these 25 down, start nailing them on doors of churches and houses, and just, okay, no, I'm not telling you to do that. But every Christian you know needs to know these 25. And guess what? If there's 25 theses, how long do you think it's going to take us to complete this series? Okay, go ahead and say it. Probably about 25 years. I understand that. So see, if I tell you you can't leave until I'm done with this series, then you'll all be dead before... Okay, all right, you get the idea. Okay, so we good? So we're going to do this? All right, thesis number one. I gave everyone during the first hour. Now, I'm, I'm reading them directly as they're written in this book, but then what I'm doing is we're modifying them because we already disagree with certain parts of it. So we're going to modify it because you know that's how I do things, right? Okay, and I want to make it simple so that you can remember them. All right, you ready? Thesis number one is, someone from the first hour would like to say, I'll read it. The thesis number one, the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible. The doctrinal contents of the entire Bible are made up of two doctrines. The doctrinal contents of the entire Bible is made up of two doctrines that differ fundamentally from each other, or differing fundamentally from each other, however you would like to write it. The doctrinal contents of the entire Bible is made up of two doctrines differing fundamentally from each other. Got that so far? So the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible are made up of what? 
Two doctrines differing fundamentally from each other. And these two doctrines are law and gospel. The doctrinal contents of the entire Bible, old and new, I want to make sure you get that, both old and new are made up of two doctrine, doctrines that differ fundamentally from each other, and that's called law and gospel. Please note, it's not that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. Both contain law and gospel. Everybody got that one? Number two, the only person who is an orthodox teacher is the one who rightly distinguishes from law and gospel, or the one who rightly teaches the proper distinction between law and gospel. The only person who's an orthodox teacher is one who does what? Rightly distinguishes law and gospel. You're not an orthodox teacher. You're not a good preacher. You're not a good teacher until you can properly do this. And I will readily admit that I was not a good teacher, an orthodox teacher, and I don't know if I'm yet either, because I don't know if I still understand the proper distinction between law and gospel. But I'm trying to be the best and most orthodox teacher I can be. All right? Because I became a Christian during the time where a lordship salvation had taken over the world. And so I thought that was the only way to understand Christianity. Okay? I didn't even know the other way. I, I was introduced to the concept of properly distinguishing between law and gospel as I was a Lutheran, but I understood that in light of a lordship salvation, so it made no sense to me. Well, then I left Lutheranism because they baptized babies, and that's where I had my issues. Ended up back in a church that obviously did not understand the distinction between law and gospel. And guess when I finally really come into contact and really, when the light came on, when I was a student at a Catholic university. And they're basically like, your lordship salvation is Catholicism. Just admit it. And then I'm like, oh, well, I guess you're kind of right. So then it's either, well, I go back to the Catholic church or go to the Catholic church. Or I got to understand how we draw the distinction between passages that seem to say that I'm saved by Faith and all the passages that say, do this, 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 do this. All the passages that says we're judged according to what? Our works. Remember, we spent how long in Romans dealing with that? We're going to be judged according to our works. How does that work? If I'm How? How? That doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. And then what kind of works? Because the one time I see someone in the Bible being judged according to their works... They're all condemned, okay? And they had better works than I ever will. They, they were doing miracles and, and I mean, they were I, things I haven't been able to do. So then I know I've got serious problems, yes? All right, so once, I, once the Catholicism began to open my eyes, I began to question lordship, but I still have to reconcile the apparent contradiction, yes? Then I think the only way to reconcile the contradiction is a proper distinction between law and gospel. So according to this, who is the only person who can be considered an orthodox teacher? The one who can rightly distinguish from law and gospel. Thesis number three. Rightly distinguishing law and gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of a Christian in general. The most difficult and highest art for a Christian to learn is rightly distinguishing law and gospel. Rightly distinguishing law and gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general. And what does that tell us? It's not going to be easy. And it's going to be difficult. But every Christian should be able to do what? They should be re- able to read from Genesis to Revelation and be able to distinguish what? What's law? What's gospel? And how that distinction works together. Guess what you should be able to do in a sermon? between law and gospel, and how those two should work together. So far, so good? All right, that's where we stop, correct? All right, everybody got number three? Rightly, rightly distinguishing the law and gospel is the most difficult what? Most difficult and highest art of Christians in general. It's the most difficult and highest art of Christians in general. Here is number four. Everybody ready? I'm going to read it as it's written, and then we will modify it, okay? The true knowledge of the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only a glorious light 
affording the correct understanding of the entire Holy Scripture. But without this knowledge, Scripture remains a sealed book. Or we could say it this way. The correct understanding of long gospel is essential to understanding the Bible correctly. The correct understanding of long gospel is essential to understanding the Bible correctly. And if you want to add, without it, the Bible remains what? A sealed book. The correct understanding of long gospel is essential to what? Understanding the Bible correctly. Without it, the Bible remains what? A sealed book. Now that's, that's a pretty big statement, is it not? Because right now I could stop and give everyone a test on long gospel and see how you do. Well, if you failed it, this would indicate what? The Bible's a sealed book to you. That's a serious claim. Remember, that's why these are labeled as what? Theses, right? We got to prove. We got we to test our thesis, right? We put forth the thesis and then we test it to prove it. But this is a very scary one because that means you could have been a Christian for years reading the Bible, teaching the Bible, but if you don't understand law and gospel, the book is sealed. You don't understand it. Or you could argue this, that all of your attempts to understand it are flawed because it's fundamentally being, it's originating from a flawed foundation. So in other words, what's the foundation for correct understanding of the Bible? Proper distinction between law and gospel. But everyone has to deal with it. When you read the Bible, do you not see scriptures that say, you must do this? Yes. Do you see scriptures that seem to indicate God has done this? You've got to figure out the distinction between the two. Has there been agreement on, on how to understand that distinction? No. Meaning that this is a difficult thing to do. All right? So the correct understanding of Scripture, right? The, or the, the correct understanding of law and gospel is essential to a correct understanding of Scripture. And without it, the Bible remains a sealed book. All right. All right, here we go. This one, this next one is long. I don't know how we're going to work this one out, okay? I'm going to I'm going to leave a lot of this out. I'm just going to kind of read through it a little bit and then we will we'll, we will figure out how to modify it, all right? Everybody got their thinking caps on? The first way in which law and gospel is confounded or confused are mixed together is the easiest to recognize and the worst. So the first way in which long gospel is confounded, which it's mixed together, which it's confused, is the easiest to recognize and it is the grossest or the worst. The book says the word grossest, but I'll just say the worst. And guess who they, the number one person they point at, at saying is guilty of doing it? Who do you think it is? No. The Pope. The Pope. Sarah back there. No, okay, not, they weren't referring to her, but okay. The Pope. So the first manner, or the first way in which long gospel is confused is the most easily recognized and it is the grossest or the worst. And the NA says, it is adopted, for instance, and by the very first people they point to is Roman Catholicism. So we'll have to see, how do they mix it up? What do they do? They name a number of other people, but we would have to, I would have to define who these groups are and what they taught, and so we're not going to do that. All right? All right, this first way of mixing it up is it consists in this. All right, so they're going to try to explain how this first way. So the first thing I want you to get is the, the first way of confounding law and gospel is the most easily recognized. It is what? The worst. And it was adopted by the Pope or Catholicism. Now this all stays under this thesis. The next part is a part of this thesis. All right? And this is what it consists of. You ready? This is what it consists of. That Christ 
is represented as a new Moses or lawgiver. And the gospel is turned into a doctrine of works. While at the same time, those who teach that the gospel is the message of the free grace of God in Christ are condemned and anathematized as done by Catholicism. So, we'll make it simple. The first manner of confusing them, right? The first manner is the easiest to discover, right? And it's the most, it's the worst. And it was adopted by whom? Roman Catholics. And what does this consist of? It takes Christ and represents him as a new Moses or a new lawgiver. And the gospel is basically turned into a doctrine of works. Now, does everyone understand how this works in Catholicism? Everyone should understand that we've talked about this in Romans. Right? Does everybody understand this? Okay. When you read Romans, Sarah better get this. Or you better get this, Sarah, or, or you're going to be excommunicated. Okay. Okay. All right. Here you go. I can't excommunicate the Pope, can I? No. Okay. All I can do is revolt. Again. I can just nail theses to her door at her house. Okay. So if you hear this late at night at your house, Emma, uh, that's me just nailing things to your door. Okay. Like, the Pope needs to be brought down. Okay. All right. And then, then she will excommunicate me next Sunday. All right. But here we go. Here's how it works. I want to make sure you understand this. When you read Romans or you read the Bible, it says, you are not saved by works. In your Protestant mind, that means what? Well, it should mean, I'm not saved by works of any kind. Right? Now, of course, we mix it up by saying, well, if I don't have enough works, then I'm not saved. Okay, but that's what we think. When a Catholic undersees that, we're often confounded and like, well, how do they not see that? What's the Catholic answer to this, Sarah? I don't want to put you on the spot. If you don't know, just say you don't know. I mean, be, I mean, you may get removed as being Pope. You know, we may have to give it to someone else. If you don't, that's okay. I'll help. All right, here we go. I'll, I'll, I'll step in and I'll be the temporary Pope, all right? I'll be like the Pope Francis to Pope Benedict. Okay, all right, everybody get it? All right, because Pope Benedict stepped in. Okay, you get it. All right, never mind. All right, here we go. Catholic humor. Yeah, none of you get it. Okay, all right, here we go. All right, you ready? See, if y'all watch Notre Dame football, you know this stuff. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? All right. They would argue, yes, you're not saved by the law. What law are they referencing when they say that? The Old Testament law. But that does not negate the law of Christ, the new Moses. The new lawgiver. So you're not saved by the Old Testament law, but that doesn't excuse you from not keeping the law of Christ. So in a roundabout way, they just replace one law with a different law. What blows my mind, which law is more difficult to keep? The law of Christ, because he expounds on it, so you would still be condemned, okay? But, all right, but you get the idea, all right? If you read uh, Catholic commentaries on Romans, you will discover how this works. They're like, you're right! On Catholic radio, do you hear that sometimes, Sarah, where they say, you're not saved by law? Okay, well, you may hear that kind of terminology, and you're like, well, see, they believe we're saved by grace. But, no, they're referring, we're not saved by the Old Testament law. But we have to keep the law of... Christ. You see how easy that is to, to, to spot? Everyone should be able to figure that out, right? You're just telling me there's a different law I have to keep. And how does that happen? Because the, the Christ is represented as a new Moses or a lawgiver. That Christ came to give a new law or, or a, a, a new, he's basically a new Moses. So then that would turn the gospel basically into a doctrine of meritorious work to some kind of works. And then if you say, no, 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 no. I'm not saved by keeping any of that. Then what happened? What does the Roman Catholic Church do to us at the Council of Trent? Or what did they do to us at the Council of Trent? Anyone who says you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, you are anathema. That's the Council of Trent, which has never been revoked or, or removed. 
So according to Catholicism, all of us are what? Anathematized. Now, I know that they don't typically say that, but it's the, it's the reality of their history, okay? They may not like it, but it's the reality of their history. Everyone should be able to detect that, correct? You should be able to detect that if that's preached. But let me tell you, that's preached in evangelical churches. What does it sound like? Emma, you claim to be a Christian? Jesus calls you to do the following things. You're to flee fornication. You're not to do this. You're not to get drunk. I'm not saying Emma's doing those things, but I'm just saying they would argue if you don't do this, then it proves that Emma... And trust me, some of you have uttered those words in private conversation. Oh, did you hear what the Pierce kids are doing? Probably not saved. And you judge their salvation based what they're doing. Oh, come on. All of us have done it. Everyone has done it. You've probably been at church potlucks doing it. And so you're judging their salvation on the basis of a law-keeping. Now, you probably are not quoting Old Testament law, but you're quoting New Testament law. You're making Jesus a new Moses who gave you a new law that says what? What does the law say? You want to say it? Do this. And you'll be saved, all right? Do this and you will be saved. That's exactly what we, it, it turns into. Isn't that, isn't that messed up? So what gets destroyed in that system? Please say, I want to make it again. The gospel gets destroyed. The law never gets destroyed. The law is never destroyed. You know why the law is never destroyed? Because that's our natural bent. We're law-based people. We're not gospel-based people. Take a kid who's abandoned Christianity, hates Christianity. They'll still walk around and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Did you see that? That's wrong. Condemn that, condemn this, condemn that. And you're like, man, you condemn more things than Christians do. Have we not seen that in our society? They got a list of rules. You're like, at least we have the Ten Commandments written down. Could you give me your commandments? It'd be like 50 pages long. Thou shall not do this. Thou shall not say this. Thou shall not do this. Thou shall not do this. And if you do it, you're canceled, you're excommunicated, you're finished. Every culture is law-based because law makes sense to us in our depravity. You know what makes no sense to us? Gospel. We, we immediately... No, no. You, are you telling me Christ did it? No, 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 no. I got to do something, right? If I'm back there telling Emma, no, Emma, Emma, look... You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because Christ alone. You're declared righteous by faith. Bobby may go, man, when he gets done. Hey, Emma, you better realize, though, if you keep, if you keep doing those things, you're not saved. That, because there's something in us that wants to say something like that. And trust me, I did it for a good portion of my Christian life. Because I thought that's what Christianity was. But that just destroys what? What gets destroyed in doing that? The gospel. And you say, no, 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 no. I'm saying you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but the faith that saves doesn't remain alone. And you're telling me, though, if I don't have the works, I'm not saved. So I don't care how you play your games. I have to have the works to be saved. And guess what they can never tell me? How many? What kind? And then they always say, but you'll never do them perfect. And don't you understand how foolish that is to say? Because they typically say the reason we do the works is because of God working in us. Well, if God is working in me to produce the works, then how many good works should we all have? If God's the one producing the works, they should be what? Perfect. They're not. Meaning, they can't be produced by God. (laughs) Because God can produce what kind of works? Perfect. Now, has anybody here reached that? If so, you probably should leave the church now because you're going to get contaminated by all of us imperfect people. All right? Yes? I mean, all of you, not me, but all of you. Okay, you, you got it. All right. What's, so how many do we have so far? One, two, three, four, five. That means we're now at thesis number six. All right. All right. Here we go.
The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached in its full sternness and the gospel not in its full sweetness. When on the contrary, gospel elements are mingled with the law and law elements with the gospel. So let's say it this way. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached fully and when the gospel is not preached fully. Now, I like the the poetic way they say it. When the law is not preached in its full sternness and the gospel not in its full sweetness. I love that. That's very poetic. But just for memory's sake, the word of God is not rightly divided when what doesn't happen? When law is not preached fully and when gospel is not preached fully then it's not been rightly divided. All right? And we'll just put a second one here with this thesis. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached fully and when the gospel is not preached fully and or when gospel elements are mingled with the law and law elements with the gospel. When the two are mingled, the word of God is not rightly divided. So if they're not preached fully, and if they are mingled, then the word of God is not rightly divided. So how do you know you're rightly dividing the word of God? Law is fully preached and fully understood. Gospel is fully preached and fully understood. And you do not mingle the two. You do not mingle the two. You know, have, have you ever seen some people when they eat, they don't want their food to touch? Right? They're like, no, my corn better be here. My mashed potatoes better be here. My okra better be here. And there better be space in between. And if the two shall touch, <laughs> I can't eat it now, right? Can't mingle it together. Where well, I like to just mingle it together, right? Okay? But a lot of people don't. Well, when it comes to law and gospel, there is no mingling allowed. Okay? There's no mingling allowed. You may have got, some of you may have attended churches that did not allow mixed bathing is what they would call it, which meant girls and guys can't swim together. Right? Well, can't mix, can't mingle. Right? That's, I'm not trying to get into that argument or discussion. What I'm trying to do is to demonstrate here what cannot mix together. You must understand they are distinct. When law is being understood, you understand the law in its fullest way. When gospel is being understood, it's to be understood in its fullest way. And again, what's the simple way for law? What's law say? Do this. And be saved. And gospel says, Christ did this so you can live. All right? Does that make sense? Or Christ did this so you can be saved. Or Christ did this to save you. There's a lot of different ways you can word it. Everybody understand that one? How often do you think law and gospel get mixed together in preaching? All, you know why it happens? You know why it happens? Now, you're not going to like this. It happens because of church members. What do people want in a sermon? Three points, points, right? A quick answer, answer, but they want points of application. You've got to apply it. You've got to apply it. You've got to apply it. Because I know when I'm preaching, and if I'm over here in some doctrinal theological world, I can look back and I'm like, okay, they're all somewhere else. Okay, they're all on vacation. They're all gone. You can see the glazed look, and it's like, all you're hearing is womp, 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 And you're like, I don't know what he said, right? And then when I ask a review question, you're like, Did you go over that? But if I say, all right, here, number one, the first thing I want you to do is you need, this week you need to do, and I give you practical points, you are very good attending to to remember those. 
I wonder why. So preachers have a tendency to focus on what in their sermons. What do you think you hear more in sermons? Do this or it has been done. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. I, I, I was taught that, taught that a million times. You've got to give them something practical. You've got to give them steps to do. Well, I, now, I used to think, okay, this is awesome. This is awesome. But you know what I discovered not too long after being, a, I mean, the longer I've been a preacher? You don't do any of the things I give you, right? Right? I mean, most of the cases, you don't even remember them, Right? Okay, you may remember an illustration about being stuck in the mud. You probably have no idea what it was about. Okay, but you get the idea. Everyone remembers that illustration. Okay, but that's the only thing. Nobody remembers the sermon. But the point is, I can give you a list. But think about all the things you've been told to do in sermons your entire Christian life. Think about it. Some of you have been saved a long time. Like, let's go. Who's been, when did, when did you start going to church, Sarah? From birth, okay. So you've been, and you're, I don't want to, I'm not supposed to ask a woman's age, okay. Okay, there you go. About to be, wow, that's old. Okay, 54, okay, 54, okay. All right, all of a sudden now I'm about to get excommunicated. All right, 54, okay, whoa, that's up there, right? That's like Noah, okay, 54, Methuselah, okay, right, 54. Now, out of 54 years, out of 54 years, that's a lot of sermons, right? That's a lot of sermons. If you were to calculate how many things you were told, do this, don't do this, do this, what, what do you think the number would be? Like, just like a, a underestimate, don't overestimate. <laughs> that, sounds like a, that sounds like a hyperbole, like I would do. I would be like a billion, okay, right? Because if I try to give an accurate number, it's never accurate. So that's why I always use hyperbole, right? Because I never can get numbers right. right? I'm not going to ask. You're older than that, okay? You're older, but in the 10,000s, okay? You're like way up there. Isn't it insane how many things? If you ever go back and look at your sermon notes, a lot of it is do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't. And if you really think about it, at some point in your Christian life, you have to start thinking, man, I stink at this. Oh, you have thought that. Okay. Like, I, I'm garbage. I'm complete, utter garbage. Because I don't do half of this. I mean, I could preach a sermon right now. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And I could talk about the, the meaning of the word inspiration in Greek, right? And what it means. And then the different understandings of inspiration, right? right? The dictation method, right? I could go through all the different methods of inspiration. I could look at scripture to demonstrate that the Bible claims to be inspired. I could preach one of those sermons just on the top of my head. But what am I going to end those sermons with? We have the inspired word of God. Now what are you to do? And what am I going to say? You are to cherish the word of God more than gold and silver, more than food. You should understand man does not live by bread. You should memorize it. You should study it. You should read it. And you would all say amen and go home and probably not do any of those things. And then come back next Sunday, either convincing yourself that you're good, or if you were honest, you would come back the next week going, I didn't do one thing from the sermon last week. I'm a complete and utter failure. Now, pastors who do altar calls, they know this. They know you're not going to do. They know you're not going to do what they tell you to do, which is wonderful for them. That's good business. Because I can pull it out whenever I need to to get you to do what? Come to the altar to repent. And why is that good for me? The more people come to the altar, we had 30 people come to the altar this morning. I'm preaching good. No, I just know that you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You know why I know you're not doing what you're supposed to do? Because I don't do what I'm supposed to do. But the, the reason it gets mingled is because preaching has almost be, you're almost taught. You gotta, you gotta make it practical. You gotta give them something to do. You gotta give them steps to take. Do I? And if I don't, then people are like, well, what was the point of that sermon? 
Now, I'm not saying you can't ever give someone something to do. I'm saying that if you're not careful, what do you end up mingling? On gospel. Now, my view of this, we'll, we'll get into this more, is I'm going to preach what the text is. I'm not one, if the text is law, I'm going to preach it as law. And if it's gospel, I'm, pre- I'm not one to say, well, 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 this passage is law, so I've got, to spend 50, I've got to spend 30 minutes now bringing in the gospel. I'm more like what the text says. But the concepts of both must be understood. Does that make sense? Some people be, believe in preaching. If you're in a law-based passage, you preach that law, but then you've got to bring in the gospel. But my thing is, if the text doesn't bring in the gospel, then why should I bring in the gospel? Right? Are there times Jesus just threw out a law? The entire Sermon on the Mount. Do this, don't do this. Then at any point, did he stop and say, hey, by the way, I took care of it all? No. So I want to make sure we understand that I don't think you have to throw it in just to throw it in. I think you go with what the text says. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. So some people will get mad at a sermon and go, that was all law. Well, what was the text? Like when someone emails me and say, that pastor was all law, I'll go listen to the sermon. And sometimes I have to email them back going, because did you look at the text? The text was all law. If the text is law, preach preach the law. Does that make sense? That, that's my thinking. I know not everyone agrees with that, but that's okay. All right? So everybody got that? Okay, how much time do we have? Oh, no! Okay. Okay. All right, here we go. So, uh, uh, the, 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 was that number six? Okay. Number six, uh, the, the word of God is not rightly divided. Well, why two things happen? When the law is not preached in fullness and the gospel is not preached in fullness and when the two are mixed. All right. Uh, number seven. The word of God is not rightly divided. When? Are you ready for this? Gospel is preached first and then law. The word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first, then law. Now I'm going to add to this, but just get, in other words, there's a correct order, they would say, needs to be understood. Why do you think that would make it not rightly divided? Do what? Okay. Oh, well, that's, that's a good argument. Law came first. I like that. That's pretty good. Because the, the, the law shows up where? Okay. How early on? Okay. Right there in Genesis when he says, thou shall not eat of, that's what? Law. If you do this, you'll die. That's law. Okay, that's law. All right, so, so very good. I like the idea of, of the order there. I was thinking it this way. The reason this is not where I rightly dividing the word of truth is the gospel without the law is really meaningless. The gospel is designed to tell me what Christ did in order to save me from the law. Right? So I need to hear the law first. That makes the gospel necessary. Now, in some churches, they don't like preaching law. Now, they end up preaching it some way, but they have a lot of times salvation is offered as what? Not as a solution, or gospel is offered not as a solution to sin or to the law, but the gospel is offered as a solution to what? Loneliness, depression, having no friends, having no purpose in life, having no meaning in life. It's offered up as a solution to all kinds of emotional issues. A lot of churches love to do that. Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus came to save me from my loneliness, my depression, my lack of friends, my broken marriage, my bad kids. No, it came to save me from the condemnation of the law. So I must hear the condemnation of the law and its sternness so that the gospel becomes sweet. The gospel is not sweet until I taste the bitterness of the law. Does that make sense? Yes? All right. They go on to add some more here just to make sure you understand it. The word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first, then the law. When sanctification is first, then justification. 
when repentance, good works first, then grace. Well, in a lot of preaching, what do you get? Sanctification first, good works first, right? You, you, or I'm sorry, you, yeah, you get sanctification first. You get all these other things first before you get grace, before you get salvation. Because so much of the Christian life is based on what? Do this, 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 do this. You take the average kid raised in a Christian home, all they think Christianity is is what? Rules. It's rules. What did you say, Sarah? A series of rules. It's a moral system. Now, it's not our... It's, I, look, I'm not trying to place guilt upon Christian parents because we've all done it. But it, you, you think that you're doing the right thing. Right? Because you want them to live a moral life because you know that morality tends to lead to what? The avoidance of a lot of pain in life. Right? You stay away from alcohol, you can't become an alcoholic. You stay away from drugs, you can't be a drug addict, right? You stay away from, uh, you know, ex- premarital sex, you have a tendency not to have a baby when you're 16 or 17, right? There's a lot of things. You stay away from an STD. I can go on and on and on and on of all the things moral. And you typically want your kids to hopefully have a successful life, right? So we have a tendency, though, to think that the way to fix it is to give them the rules and the morality. And I understand that. And we, and we, and we, it's not like we never tell them the gospel, but you know how kids, look, if once a kid gets older and they tell you about their childhood, sometimes do you kind of go, wait, you were raised by me? Because I don't think that happened in our, our, like what happened? Like, wait, wait, when did this happen? I remember Kate one time telling us something and then she called Lacey for confirmation. I'm like, how does Lacey know? Lacey was on her house like three times. She knows. And I'm like, what is this, ganging up all the kids? Like, I don't think that happened. How did that happen? And so me and Stacey still today talks about, like, did it go down that way? I don't remember going down that way. I mean, maybe, if, I'm like, if it did, it was your fault. Clearly, I wasn't, I, I wasn't me. Okay, but, but have you ever had your kids when they get older tell you about, has anybody experienced that? Okay. Oh, yeah. and, and you're kind of just baffled by like, I don't think... I don't think it went down that way. But in their minds, it did. It did. And the reason it did is because of the perception. Remember, perception, I, I, and the military used to always say, and I hate the concept in the military, but the military would always say, perception is reality. And I'd be like, no, it's not. Perception isn't reality. It's my perception of a reality. And if my perception is wrong, it doesn't change reality because reality, and I would get all philosophical on them and they'd be like, shut up. Okay. And I'm like, no. Okay. Reality is, this is reality. If Bobby's perception is that this is a buffalo, okay, his perception is wrong. It's a pulpit. It's not a buffalo. But if he starts yelling and screaming and jumping over pews, like the buffalo is going to get us, we would get him help. (laughs) Right? I wouldn't say, you're right. That is a buffalo. Run! Okay? Agreed? See? His perception would be wrong. So, but the thing is, is that that perception, though, becomes real to them. And it's almost impossible to speak them out of it. So it's sad that many Christian kids think Christianity is a bunch of rules and they will usually say something like this, that none of them follow. Instead of saying Christianity is about what Christ came and did for us because we could not keep the rules. Man, I wish they they would have understood that. I wish they would have... But you... But you... But you were afraid that they wouldn't then follow any of the rules. Like, it's so, oh, it makes me so mad at myself, right? I mean, it makes me mad, but the the Christianity I was brought up in was do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to secular music. Don't dance. Don't do this. Don't do that. I probably had 500 rules probably within the first week of being a Christian. I had a notebook trying to, like, how do I do all? I'm like, I almost wanted to raise my hand. I didn't sign up for all of this. I just like Jesus died for my sins. No one had to tell me I was a sinner, right? I probably had drugs hidden in my room at the time that I was selling to kids at Jim Ned. So I know no one had to tell me that I was a sinner. I got that part down. But then I'm like, okay, whoo, Jesus died for my sins. And then it was like, however, 
I'm like, okay, wait, so what? Okay, don't listen to this music. Wait, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. I had some bumper sticker on my car that I was told that that was wrong. And then I, I can't remember. There was a million things that I was doing that was, this was wrong. This or Okay, you can't use that word. You, you can't, because I didn't have any idea what Christianity was about. And I'm like, I'm like, man. I like, I want to go back home because my parents had no rules, right? Okay, so like, I, I like no rules. Like, this is crazy. But, I, but then, I, I, that's the way I thought it worked. And then I start convincing myself that I'm keeping the rules. Did, did you not play that game? Okay, and then at some point I realize, I'm an idiot. I don't think I've ever kept any of these rules. Well, now, there, now, there was a brief time in my Christian life where I was so distraught by not keeping the rules that I went to, well, they know the pastor, Brother Mike, First Baptist Church, uh, Tuscola, and sat in his office and asked if I was demon-possessed. And you think that that's crazy because I didn't understand. I don't keep the rules. All right, so let's repeat this one and we'll have to end. I know we're not getting far. Well, Stacy's going to come through that door and say, if you don't stop talking, you're not going to be alive to keep the rules because I'm tired of working in the nursery or working with Sunday school. Okay, all right, here we go. So what was this one? Make sure we get this. The Bible, the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first and the law second, right? When you have sanctification first, then justification, right? When you have faith first, then repentance. When you have good works first, then grace. When you have that order wrong, it's all messed up. Does that make sense? All right. I'll have to stop there. Now, if you can be here tonight, I would really appreciate it because we're going to do what? We're going to try to move forward in this. and I want to get as close to being done with this tonight as possible because I want to list all of them. Then we're going to work through each thesis and try to understand how this works. All right. Any questions? Quickly. No. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. I hope everyone understands the significance of what we're trying to do. I hope that they will at least give it great consideration. And I hope that when we're done, every single person in this room can understand the distinction between law and gospel and that we will at least allow it to have some impact on our Christian life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...